when I think of self-extraction, I think of pouring out and giving and holding space and showing up for other people, not from a place of overflow, but from a place of depletion and not from a place of genuine capacity and desire, but from a place of pressure and fear of what will happen if we don't and really like a place of perceived lack. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about personal and collective transformation. My guest today is Lisa Oliveira, who I discovered through her writing on Substack, where she authors a very beautiful newsletter called Human Stuff. That feels like, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, I would say that Human Stuff feels like it shares some DNA strands with this podcast. It has a strong curiosity about the human condition and about how we evolve and about how we can be more tender with ourselves. And when I went to write Lisa's introduction for this episode, I decided that I liked her about page so much that there was no point in trying to improve on it. So here's a little bit of how Lisa describes herself and her work in her own words. I'm a writer, a creative, a therapist, a seeker an Enneagram 4W5, an INFJ, a one-third splenic projector, or maybe that's one over three splenic projector. That's some human design stuff. I don't know a lot about that. A deep question asker, an adoptee, a wife, a mother, a cat mom, a sister, a student of curiosity, and a nature worshiper. She writes, I think of myself as a guide and mirror who is here to support humans in remembering cultivating, and living into their full humanity. I am certain that we are all already whole, worthy, and good enough, but sometimes life and the systems we live in make it really hard to remember that truth. Amen to that. Lisa is also the author of the wonderful book, Already Enough, A Path to Self-Acceptance, which is about how to reframe the stories we tell ourselves about our own worthiness. Side note to listeners who are particularly into Myers-Briggs personality tests, I am a total sucker for INFJs, which Lisa is. You put me in a room and I will immediately gravitate towards them. I'm an INTP myself, so it's a nice balance. And this conversation felt like a really nice balance. Lisa and I delved into some deep waters around big life transitions We talked about what it's like to step out from behind the scenes and to claim your voice and your whole humanness. And we talked about why we fall into and stay in professional roles or careers that we may have outgrown. And we also discussed how easy it is to slip into patterns of self-extraction, where we find ourselves overgiving and holding space for others to the point of depletion. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's dive in. Lisa, welcome to Hurry Slowly. Thank you so much for having me. I am a longtime listener of this podcast, so I was just so grateful and touched when you connected to, yeah, to have me on. So thank you. Mm, So tickled. So I wanted to start out pretty simple and just ask you, 
what's on your mind lately? What are you really sitting with or reflecting on at this kind of point in time, this season, this moment in your life? Oh my goodness. I could go so many different directions with that question, but I think I think the first thing that comes up is actually like what it looks and feels like to live in a seasonal way and to tend to myself and to my life and the things that I need and want and the things that are pulling on my attention in a way that really honors the fact that my energy is constantly shifting and is not always the same. Um, which I think a lot of that has come from motherhood. A lot of it has come from stepping away from certain roles that I've held, but yeah, over the last six months to a year, I would say I've just been very connected to the different seasons within me and how, how I can approach myself and my life from that lens, which has felt really grounding and also challenging in the world we live in that often asks and requires us to constantly move and be at one speed, which I am just inherently not. So I've been, yeah, just exploring a lot about what it looks like to be in the season that I'm in and how that often differs from the world that we live in and where I can find sort of some way of cohesiveness in, in that difference that's always there. Maybe not always, but that's often there, I would say. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be really aligned with some of the stuff that I was hoping to talk to you about today, which is no surprise because I've been following your writing for a long time and a lot of what you've been writing about lately has really been resonating with me and is part of what I wanted to get into today. Um mm. But as you say that, it's reminding me of the last interview that I did, which was with the embodiment coach, Prentice Hempel. And mm-hmm. one of the things that they were saying was that our our cultural or the dominant culture has no rhythm, you know, that it's just this kind of steady uh, progression up and to the right, you know, sort of a mono pace, um, maybe ever getting faster and just this kind of go, go, go mode where there's no rhythm, right? Or no seasons, as you're saying. Um, And I've been resting with that, that idea of rhythms and thinking about rhythms. But as you say, it's very, uh, and as Prentice said, it's it's not very aligned with what we're uh, accustomed to in our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love Prentice's work and their work around embodiment is a continual resource that I come back to as I'm exploring some of these things and just, yeah, noticing the difference between the pace in which we live and the pace of our bodies and how hard it can be to tune back toward ourselves and listen to what's there rather than moving from all of the external noise and the external pressure and the external ways of being that just don't always, like you said, don't always align with what our own humanity is asking of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I want to get into that 
external and talk a little bit more about that. And for folks who don't know you well already um, and aren't familiar with your work, I wanted to kind of frame up a little bit of the backstory to start out. So my understanding is you decided to leave your role as a therapist about a year ago to pursue writing after becoming pretty well known on Instagram in that particular role as a therapist. You'd gotten on Instagram back in 2017 when kind of posts and discussions around therapy and self-investigation and trauma were not as common as they are now, and you built a pretty substantive following. And then you were featured in this serendipitous New York Times profile that really gave you this boost in terms of awareness. And also at the same time, it seems, um, from what I have gathered from your writing, also created a lot of inner turmoil about who you were and what you were doing and, and what you wanted to be doing. So for folks who don't know your backstory, could you give us kind of a sketch of the arc of how all of that unfolded, being a therapist, kind of becoming an Instagram famous therapist, beginning to question that identity and that career path, and then deciding to make a big change? Yeah, I had been working in community-based mental health as a therapist for many years and eventually went into private practice. And that was around the time when I started sharing on Instagram as a way to just extend some of what I've learned and experienced outward and create other modes of support, knowing that private practice wasn't as accessible to people and moving from my values, working in community-based mental health, I wanted to continue finding ways to be of service to folks who may not necessarily be able to access or afford therapy in private practice, which is what I was moving into for a lot of reasons, but mainly because of burnout in various different levels. Um, So I started sharing on Instagram around that time. And it was the time where the themes of therapy and self-development and self-inquiry were becoming a little bit more popular on social media. And I can't say exactly why that was happening, but it felt like I just sort of jumped into this niche of being a therapist on Instagram at the right time. And my account got quite popular, quite fast in ways that I did not anticipate. And I was, you know, sharing resources and practices and tools and, and just reflections on being human. Um, Almost every day, it became a pretty core part of the work that I was doing. Um, It got me a book deal. It allowed me to cultivate access to a lot of opportunities that I probably wouldn't have had if I had not started that account. But at the same time, I was writing my book and becoming more well-known as a therapist. I was also feeling this internal, just this internal pull to write more from my full self and my Mm. whole humanity, which is really hard to do when you are in a role that requires you to be sort of 
quiet and in the background and Mm. sort of a blank slate in ways that a lot of traditional therapy asks us to be. And so I, yeah, I just, I sat with the tension for a long time and really resisted this pull to want to write in different ways for, I would say for years, um, because I just didn't really think that it was a viable option. And I felt like I had already sort of found my niche and I needed to stick with it. And I had found success in this one part of me in this one role and I needed to stick with it um, and continue building, which I think is sort of what we're taught to do in so many ways. Um, But once I got pregnant in 2021, I just had a lot of time to slow down and look at my life and look at what I wanted and notice my desires and my energy and my capacity. And when I returned to my private practice after maternity leave, I just felt this whole body know, um, Mm. this whole body experience saying like, it's time to, to be done with this for now. Um, and I didn't know what was on the other side of that. I didn't have a backup plan for income or for work. But I felt like that season of life I was in gave me the permission to make the decision I needed to make, even without necessarily having, you know, a specific reason or plan to follow through on or um, different path to move toward. And yeah, it was one of the first times where I just listened to what I needed and desired and let myself choose from that place. And that happened about a year ago. And I I still haven't entirely replaced my income. I still haven't um, fully stepped into making an income from writing in the way that I hope to. But I I think for the first time in my life, actually listened to what was right for me and for where I'm at in this season of, of life and of being and of growing. And yeah, it's just, it's created an opening in a way that I didn't know was possible before I let myself make that decision to step away from the path that felt really known and secure and more stable into a path that felt more true and aligned and real. And yeah, it's, it's been a deep, a deep process that feels hard to sort of wrap up in a quick a quick overview, but I, I think those are the, the pieces that feel most resonant as I'm exploring just sort of what the arc has been. Thank you so much for that answer. And uh, as you note, it's a very difficult question here. Give me a quick sketch of this uh, incredibly meaningful <laughs> life transformation <laughs> in just a few moments is a little bit of a, a little bit of a hard ask. Um, but I wanted to give folks just a little bit of context to start out. Mm-hmm. And I would love to go a little deeper at first into what you're touching into about listening to what is right and in many ways how easy it is to not listen to that. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show and to talk about your arc And your ongoing transformation is because I just did an episode recently called Am I Allowed to Say This, Uh, which was exploring the ways in which we 
get locked into these online personas that we cultivate, you know, on the web or on social media or even on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And we cultivate these identities to develop certain audiences and followings. But once we have a certain level of success, we start to become beholden to them. We mm-hmm. can become this kind of monoculture of ourselves where it feels like we have to show up in every space online in a certain way with a certain persona. And there's this pressure to continue to tend to and be consistent with this identity that we've created. And, you know, of course, it's extremely suffocating and detrimental to our self-expression and to our growth. And in that episode, I talked a little bit about my own past identity as a productivity expert, if you will, and how trying to maintain consistency with that was leading me to suppress this whole spiritual, more mystical side of my persona. So I'm curious, what's your take on how we get locked into these personas? Um, And then maybe after that, we can kind of touch into, you know, (laughs) what, if anything, we can sort of do to to avoid that. Yeah, I I think the experience of feeling steady in a certain role or persona or way of being that we present to the world, it gives us this this sense of security and stability and perceived idea of control, at least from my experience, and this sense of knowing what to expect and knowing what's expected of us and the sort of comfortability and safety that can come in that, which in some ways can can serve as a steady ground for a while. I think where it gets tricky is when we remember that we are not linear beings and we are not meant to stay the same and we change and morph and grow and learn and unlearn and become and unbecome through so many different phases of our lives that those roles we feel comfortable in don't always have space and room for. Yet I think the sense of security and comfortability we can find in the roles that we become familiar with can be enticing enough to make it easy to ignore the callings or the longings that might fall outside of those roles. And I know that that was my experience. I I knew that this role that I was showing up in as a therapist was liked and desired by people. I knew that it was being of service in a certain way. Um, it gave me sort of a more clear path to follow and to share from and to show up from. Yet the cost at some point became greater than the clarity and the certainty that I thought it was bringing both for me and for other people. And the cost of all of these other parts of me that have been wanting to come forward was slowly becoming greater than the benefit of feeling sort of secure and comfortable in this public role that I had been holding and this sort of known and expected way that I had been showing up both within myself personally and I think within sort of the parasocial relationship, the expectation from audience and from people who are following our work. Um, 
there just becomes this ease with which we keep people in their boxes that we come known to see them in and a discomfort with allowing both ourselves and other people to change and to grow out of the boxes that once fit but no longer do. Um, And as I was contemplating leaving my role as a therapist and opening up into just a more spacious way of, of working and being, the fear of leaving that box that I and others quickly got very comfortable with me being in was was pretty high because the unknown on the other side didn't hold the same expectation and certainty and um, just like the illusion of who I was to people. Um, it just didn't hold the same... Yeah, like the same knowing that I think we can feel from being in a certain role for so long. This episode is brought to you by Hover. So in the past six months, I have launched three new websites, one for my course on Tender Discipline, one which was a full update of my personal website and offerings, and one for my energy healing practice at The Light Heart Project. And I am really the type of person who likes to tend to all of the little details myself and to create and launch and manifest things very quickly, which is why I love Hover. It makes the whole web invention process totally smooth and seamless for me. Because Hover is all about helping you take the first step to get your ideas off the ground, whether it's starting a business, creating a brand, or sharing your gifts with the world. If you have a brand that you've always dreamt of building or a business you want to take online, the first step is always, as we all know, finding your domain name. And Hover makes the process super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, easy to use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly humans. Finding the perfect domain name is a key part of building a successful business, and Hover has everything that you need. In addition to the classics like .com, you can get extensions like .shop, .tech, and .art, with over 400 more to choose from. You can buy a domain, set up custom email boxes, and point it to your website in just a few clicks. It's secure, it's simple, and it's reliable. Hover is a trusted and popular choice amongst millions of people launching any kind of business or brand. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with the perfect domain name, head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first Hover purchase. Once again, that's hover.com slash hurry slowly for 10% off. I'm curious about your experience of, um, I guess, the dissonance between those two things. So in a recent piece that you wrote called The Grief of the Right Choice, such an excellent title, um, mm. you said that you you know, didn't want to be known as this sort of insta-therapist, that you wanted to be known as a writer. And one thing that I've spent a good deal of time thinking about for myself is what it feels like when your inner conception of yourself doesn't match the external perception of yourself. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, the way that you see yourself and your purpose is different from the way that those around you view you and your purpose. 
And I think there can be a lot of grief in the chasm between those two things. And even in trying to bridge that chasm, Mm -hmm. what's your experience of that feeling, the feeling that the way that you are perceived or what you've gained notoriety for isn't maybe completely in alignment with who you, you feel yourself to be? Yeah, I think it can be especially challenging when like parts of what we become known for are aligned, but parts aren't. Mm -hmm. So it's not like being a therapist is completely misaligned with who I am. And it's not like that work was entirely out of alignment with my desires or with what's important to me, Mm -hmm. which I think can make it even harder to to choose something different than when it's a little bit more clear cut and when it's a little bit more, um, I guess, obvious to us that what we're doing is the right fit for the time that we're doing it. And I think there can be, like you said, it's a big process of grief to, to be willing to let go of something that's working well enough in order to find something that feels more alive for us. And I think that's kind of the place that I had found myself in was I felt so grateful to get to be of service in this way and to be able to connect with people and offer support and resources and reminders and a mirror of how to to be with ourselves while we face all the things we face as humans but i f- i just felt my these other parts of myself like so desperate to come forward and these parts that had for so long thought that there was not space for them and that there wasn't room for them and i think being so seen in this one role just allowed me allowed me to more clearly see the parts of me that were asking for me to see them, if that makes sense, that weren't necessarily seen by other people in the way that I was as a therapist. And in order to let go of being really well known in that role, I had to be willing to, yeah, to honor, honor the parts of me that didn't fit in that role publicly, but that were asking to be let out in different ways, which meant, which meant having to sacrifice some of the, um, I'm not quite sure what the right word is. I guess some of the, the comfort of that public, public role I was in for mm-hmm. just for the, uh, the spaciousness for belongings to write in different ways that were coming up um, in other parts of me. Well, I'm really curious about this kind of um, what feels like a sort of an implicit narrative of, you know, you were talking about the role of the therapist as, you know, sort of being a little bit more, um, being a little bit of a blank slate, being a mirror, right? And I'm curious about this kind of idea of moving from a role that is more um, assistive or more reflective, um, more behind the scenes 
to a role where you're maybe a little bit more center stage, right? So it's not that you are where you are, um, you know, really serving and assisting people with solving um, their own dilemmas to moving into a role where it's more like, oh, I, I really have something to say, you know, here on my own outside of this kind of role that's really helping you usher in something about yourself. Um, and part of the reason that's coming up for me is I felt I really relate to that trajectory. I was doing a lot of work in the past, more as an editor, more as a producer, uh, you know, where I was really helping other folks kind of birth things into the world or making things happen, but being more behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And there was a real shift that unfolded for me of feeling like, oh, but I have these things that, that I want to say, you know, and, and feeling that I wanted to kind of step out from behind the curtain. And, you know, I feel as um, women, you know, we're really taught to kind of play that role, right, of the assistive role of helping others to usher things in, of maybe being not in the spotlight. And I'm curious if that resonates for you, this idea of kind of moving from behind the scenes to a little bit more center stage, a little bit more of like what I have to say standing on my own is of value, um, if that resonates and how, how that's kind of unfolding for you. Yeah, it resonates so much. And I think the trajectory of moving from this place of sort of being of service in the behind the scenes role versus being of service by just showing up by being myself Mm -hmm. um, has really aligned with my own personal healing and growth and acceptance of myself. I think for a long time, I felt like in order to be of value, I needed to self-extract to give to other people And I needed being of service and being helpful to be the things that I was led by rather than being led by other parts of me, like my creativity and my personal experience and just who I am as a human. And I think so much of that goes back to our conditioning and also just our, the things that we reckon with in our individual experiences and stories, you know, for me, so much of it was, it, it almost felt safer to just be in this one role than to show up and be seen as a whole person, because there's less chance of rejection when I'm in a helping role than there is Mm. when I'm showing up as a full human, you know, writing things that I'm moving through outside of any one role. Mm -hmm. And I think as I, as I felt more and more at home in myself, that sense of and fear of rejection felt less and less scary, which made it easier to slowly listen to those parts of me that wanted to come out more and made it feel a little bit more doable to slowly step away from that role I thought I needed to be in in order to be a valuable person. And so I think that's where sort of the roles that we take on and the identities that we hold, especially in relationship to other people, can really tie into our own personal 
healing experiences and growth and forward movement as whole humans. And that overlap can bring up a lot of grief because it means being willing to confront all the ways that we may have ignored parts of ourselves in order to be safe and potentially being willing to confront the things that we didn't know we could say yes to based on those limited roles we thought we were allowed to hold in, in certain ways. You used an interesting word there when you were, uh, describing your role, you said that you, I think you said something to the effect of you felt you had to self-extract. Can you say a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that phrase, word? I'm quite curious. Yeah. When I think of self-extraction, I think of pouring out and giving and holding space and showing up for other people, not from a place of overflow, but from a place of depletion Mm. and not from a place of genuine um, capacity and desire, but from a place of pressure and fear of what will happen if we don't. And um, really like a place of perceived lack. Um, I know that that was my experience, especially when I first went into the role of becoming a therapist, I, and I didn't realize this until I would say the last year or two, but I, I really do think that I, I, I thought that if I fulfilled this role that almost like I would be okay. And like, I would be, yeah, like I would be good or something. And (laughs) which I think is so common in so many of the roles that we hold, but I think it's it's really hard to admit that to yourself and to mm-hmm. to be willing to look at, you know, what purpose some of the roles we hold are serving if they're not actually serving us in the ways that we need them to. Um and I think when I look at it from that lens, like I can have so much compassion for how easy it is to fall into certain identities or roles or ways of being that do serve some function, but that don't ultimately serve us in the ways that we think that they are, um, but that serve perhaps some of the wounds that we're trying to heal through fulfilling those roles. Mm. Thank you for that explanation. That was uh, really beautiful and also a bit painful. I was resonating with the... Uh, with the themes of overgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, so to come back to this, this kind of arc we were discussing from kind of moving from behind the scenes to a little bit more center stage, or maybe just a little bit more wholeness of showing up. Can you say a little bit more about how this feeling of knowing that you want to be a writer came into being? Is that something that really just emerged recently? Or have you always felt quite drawn to writing, but didn't feel that you could pursue it until now for whatever whatever reasons there were? I've always felt drawn to writing and I've always 
I've always imagined being a writer and writing books. And like, I've had that vision for myself since I was a child. And since books were my companions and since journaling was like the only place I felt like I could be honest in the world. Um, and I think because writing was such a safe place for me as a child, I couldn't really conceptualize being able to share and write, um, for and with other people until I started writing in one way publicly and realized that there actually were people who were interested in what I had to say. And that when I did slip in snippets of my humanity and my story and things that I was moving through personally, it did resonate with people. And it was something that could connect me with people in a way that didn't require me to hold space or, or deny myself or stay quiet, but that allowed me to connect through a shared humanity that I think we find in writing and in other people's words that feels really intimate and meaningful and important. Um, I don't think I, I honestly just don't think I believed that I was capable of being a writer in or writing books, I, I think there was a lot of self-doubt around that path and if it was something I could actually do. But when I published my book last year, um, which I was approached to write, you know, as a therapist, as I moved through the book writing process, I I just fell in love with the practice of writing and having a big project and while I was writing that book, which is more so like a therapy bent self-help kind of book, I just felt this like deep, deep desire to write in different ways and to see if I could pursue that. Um, and so I began practicing sharing writing from different parts of me. And um, while I think the way I write is certainly informed by my work as a therapist, it feels much more expansive and creative. And, and I think over the last year or two, I've found myself in a place where, yeah, where it, it feels like there is more room to write from my whole self and to, to find avenues to do that. Um, and to, to just give myself permission to pursue yeah, to pursue letting myself be seen in that way, which is still quite uncomfortable and a growing edge, but it's one that actually feels nurturing and makes me feel more alive and makes me feel more connected to the world, uh, which I think is something I've been longing for for my entire life. And and that pull to feel more alive is one of the reasons why I've been practicing saying yes to, to to writing more and to exploring how I can make more space in my life to to do that. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun, and I really appreciate you uh, being willing to talk while you're in the midst of this uh, transformation. I talk about transformation on this podcast quite a bit, and one of my strong convictions about it is that it's almost always 
rather messy, mm-hmm. which I think can be easy to forget because we live in this cultural moment right now that really lionizes transformation, but in a very specific way and one that you've written about where there's, you know, before and an after and typically a very neat story about how you got from one to the other. And I think that that false narrative is quite dangerous in part because it makes us, you know, really beat ourselves up or question ourselves or be critical of ourselves when we can't make these, you know, kind of big leaps with total grace and uh, smoothness. And one thing I'm really noticing right now among folks who listen to this podcast or who participate in my courses is that a lot of folks are considering pretty major life changes, major career changes, are feeling perhaps called to serve in some new way that feels more deeply aligned for them, you know, just as you are. And they're struggling with how to be confident in making the shift, how to, you know, actually execute that shift, how to make it all work financially. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on kind of the messiness and the discomfort of the transformation and how that's showing up for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one thing I want to name first is that I have the privilege of living in a two-income household. And I think that has made it a little bit easier for me to feel like I can move toward the unknown um, while being able to feed myself and my daughter. You know, I think that that's something that a lot of people don't have. And a lot of people can feel like there's something wrong with them for not being able to make these big life decisions that they see other people making with such um, perceived ease. But I think for a lot of folks, there are very real, you know, there are very real factors at play that we often don't consider when we look at these dreamy before and after stories that aren't as accessible to to everyone in the ways that we think they're supposed to be. So I first want to name that I don't know if I would have been able to step away from my therapy work if I hadn't had another income to rely on in my household. And I don't think a lot of people name privileges like that when they talk about making these decisions. So I feel like it's important to, to first just name that. Um, and that I think having, yeah, having those baselines of our basic needs being able to be met is incredibly important when we think about the stories we see other people sharing and our capacity to make the decisions that we want or need to make for ourselves. Um, Another thing that I think comes up is, is letting ourselves acknowledge that it is a lot messier and a lot, a lot more murky in our actual lives when we choose to make decisions that feel right and true for us, than it appears to be when people share about it on social media or when people share their triumph stories after they've gotten to some perceived other side, 
And we can so often compare the rocky process of actually listening to what is right and true for us to what we think may be a linear process for other people, which is often because we're pressured to only share part of these processes and and parts of our experience once we've gotten to some imaginary other side. And I think that's why I've felt really called to actually share a lot from this sort of in-between middle place, because I think this is actually the place that we are so often living in. And it's the murky waters that we're so often treading in some way or another. And it's the unknown and the uncertainty that we are more often navigating than these perceived other sides we think we're supposed to get to and get to immediately. Um, And so I think there's something really powerful about, about letting ourselves acknowledge the, the challenge and the difficulty of moving toward a more aligned and true and um, just a more alive life, whatever that looks like for us. And I think it's a gift to be, to be able to talk about the pieces behind the scenes that we assume no one else is experiencing but us so that we can see that actually making these decisions is not easy for so many reasons. And it's, it's such a, a self-honoring choice to even acknowledge the things that we want or the things we're longing for, let alone to begin making the steps to move toward those things. Um, yeah, that's what that's what initially comes up when you asked that question. Mm, yeah, and thank you for naming and acknowledging the financial piece. That was something that uh, I had wanted to ask you about and was curious about. And as you say, is um, very much an often untalked about uh, piece of these transformations. That it's a real luxury and a privilege to. Um, have, you know, a financial situation in which you are able to um, make those leaps and to have a little bit of uh, a little bit of cushion so that you can figure out what you need to figure out because it is murky and it does take a while. And even though that is um, uncomfortable and challenging, it's also very much a privilege to even be able to move into that space. Um, I want to circle back to a little bit of what you started to touch into at the beginning of the conversation. From what I observe of your writing, and of course, you can feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, it it feels like you are in a, a gestation period of sorts. You've written about trying to come to terms with waiting. And I think it's really important to honor that we need and will have these periods of gestation in the midst of big transitions where things are happening, the groundwork is being laid, subconscious shifts are happening, but we're not actively working towards something in a really obvious external way. Mm -hmm. And again, I think, you know, in terms of the ways in which we're acculturated, that is extremely frustrating. We're quite used to instant gratification or at the very least being able to sort of situate ourselves on some sort of, you know, trajectory of productivity. 
But in my experience, transitions and transformations often happen much, much more slowly than I anticipate. I think sometimes about this, this Brian Eno quote where he says something to the effect that before you can start a new project, you have to let the momentum of the old project run down. Mm. And that feels very true to me. But in the dominant culture, there's just no time or space for the momentum to run down or for us to rest peacefully in this period of gestation. So I guess I'm curious to hear about your kind of experience as you're thinking about seasonality, as you're thinking about waiting um, of gestation and maybe even the tension that that creates within sort of the larger cultural context. Mm -hmm. The seasonality lens has been such an anchor for me when I've found myself sort of floundering in the unknown and feeling like I need to get somewhere else already. And when I feel like nothing is happening, um, I think we only attribute something happening to when it is an outward action that is visible to others. And we don't attribute all of the underground, beneath the skin, you know, within ourselves, growth and momentum that happens, even when it appears like we're doing nothing. And like you said, I think especially in this culture that we live in that really prizes outward movement and forward movement and action and things that are visible to other people, um, it can be hard to really honor sort of the slower life cycle of growth and change and transformation, which is, I think, where like actual genuine change and transformation happens at the pace of and in the timing of is, like you said, much slower than we think it's supposed to. Um, and I think there's there's been something really humbling about also acknowledging like all the things that I am doing every day that maybe don't fall into this idea of what I think forward movement or momentum is supposed to look like. Um, I think about like playing with my daughter and feeding her multiple times a day and doing all the things that I'm doing to tend to her life and how easily I don't count that as doing anything at all, even though it's actually really significant. Mm -hmm. I think for people without children, like there are small things that we don't even look at as things that require movement and momentum that we're actually doing every day that are giving way to these bigger changes and transitions that we're hoping to move through. So I think one, one piece that's been really potent for me is sort of like zooming in really, really far on my day-to-day life so that I can actually see the movement that's happening even when I feel stuck in the bigger picture. And, and also noticing where, yeah, like where momentum is actually occurring, even if it may not be visible in the ways that I think it should be. 
and even when it may not fit the the vision of what I think right timing is supposed to be, um, I've been noticing, yeah, where I can pay closer attention to momentum and change at the pace of slowness and smallness and um, Adrienne Marie Brown, I think it was her who I first heard say like in her book, um, Emergent Strategy, that small is all. And I, I come back to those words so often when I want to get to some other place or make something big happen and just try to sort of recenter like what momentum and movement and growth actually looks like in a day-to-day, moment-to-moment human life rather than what it looks like in capitalism or in productivity culture or in the calendar year or in these sort of external markers of momentum and change that we're used to seeing ourselves and seeing our growth um, through. So you just mentioned uh, capitalism in that response, and I wanted to go into an aspect of that a little bit more deeply that I think has kind of been running alongside this conversation that we've been having. Um, In one of your recent posts, uh, which was titled Tending to the Shame of Stuckness, you wrote, quote, I find myself not wanting anyone to know what I'm struggling with until I can turn that struggle into medicine for others to consume. End quote. I found myself simultaneously relating really hard to this sentence and also a little bit cringing at myself relating to it. Um, <laughs> as someone who, who also myself sits kind of at the nexus of a past in self-help and a future in writing that has a undeniably self-confessional quality to it, I'm always anxiously monitoring my own tendency to turn my experiences into medicine for others to consume. Mm -hmm. And I think there is beauty in that act and that impulse of turning one's experiences into medicine for others to consume. And that might even be a not bad working definition of of what writing is or what some writing is. Mm. And also, it feels dangerous to always be packaging yourself up for others' consumption I did an interview many years back now with this Slovenian philosopher, Renata Seletzel, who described peak capitalism as really being when we begin to consume ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think it wouldn't be untrue to describe social media as a means of productizing and consuming ourselves. How do you think about that consumption piece? And do you draw lines or set boundaries around what you you will or you won't share publicly? Yeah, I think about this so often. And I think it ties into what I said earlier about self-extraction and how, yeah, I think bypassing what feels right and true to share in the name of turning something into medicine for someone else is self-extraction. Mm. And so when I think about where where am I uh, where am I bypassing my own boundaries, my own needs, 
my own wants, my own desires in order to give something that I think someone else wants or needs, even when it isn't aligned with what actually feels good and right and true for me to share or give or offer. That's the question that I sort of circle back to. Um, And I think what you said about, you know, the path of writing being so much about turning our experiences into something that become more than just about us and that can tap into something more universal or more shared. Um, that's, that's so much of what the gift of writing is. And it can very quickly turn into a way of trying to package our humanity that may not always actually hold room for the, the process and the space that we need to move through our own experiences and our own lives. So I think there's there's such a fine line between knowing what a gift it can be to ourselves and to others to share parts of what we're moving through that feel aligned to share versus looking at ourselves and our lives and asking what we can pull in order to have something to offer. Um, and I think I, I always sort of find myself towing that line because similar to what you just shared, I do tend to share from more personal experiences and I do tend to share based on my own values from being in the process of moving through things rather than just sharing from what a lot of people, I think Glennon Doyle maybe was the first one to say this, but sharing from the scar and not the wound. Mm. Um, I actually have some changed feelings about that because I think so often we don't have the privilege to to wait until everything is closed before we choose to share it for whatever reason. Um, but I, I do think there's a deep way of having compassion for the process that we need to move through while we choose what we share and don't share. And while we feel into what what is for other people and what is not. Um, And I think it's a continual process of self-inquiry and curiosity and openness and being willing to ask for myself, being willing to ask myself those questions um, and noticing when I bypass my own boundaries, because I think that naturally happens sometimes too. And I don't, I try not to hold myself to a standard of, never doing that, but more so being willing to notice like when it actually didn't feel so aligned to share something or when it maybe felt too soon or Mm. when I shared more that I actually wish that I shared and what that was about and being in the continual inquiry of what is for me and what, what am I willing to, to open up to others? Um, I think that's sort of an ongoing lifelong process. You said that you had some, or that your feelings might've changed about thinking about this idea of the sort of distance between the scar and the wound and when is appropriate or even available to share something. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think that for so many reasons, many of us, may have wounds that will never fully close. Many of us may have scars that we will continuously be picking at for a lifetime. 
And for some of us, it might actually be really meaningful and healing and restorative and reparative to share some of those scars and to not feel like we have to wait until it's all cleaned up and all finished and all moved through and we've gleaned the wisdom from it before we get to be witnessed in it. Um, I think about people with disabilities. I think about people who live in identities that are never going to be changed, but that are continuously harmed by the wider culture. I think about people who experience depression and, you know, people who experience things that are going to be ongoing perhaps for a lifetime and how there should be room for, for them to choose to share from that place too. If it feels, if it feels nourishing to, um, I think that we have to have boundaries and we have to listen to our bodies and to what feels right and aligned for us to share. But I think following that rule often actually bypasses what feels right and true to share because sometimes it does feel right and true to share from an open scar that is not closed or healed. Like sometimes that's the place that we need to speak from. Sometimes that's the place that we need to hear other people speak or write or share from. And I think to say that it's only okay or correct or right to share from a scar or from when something is closed up enough, um, I don't know. Like in some ways, perhaps, yes, that can be true in some cases. And I think there's some nuance there that maybe leaves out the reality that some of our wounds are going to remain so for longer than we may want them to. And perhaps we don't have to wait a lifetime before we choose to share from that place. Absolutely. And I think also, as I'm listening to you speak, what I'm thinking about is that that kind of idea is also putting our healing on this linear timeline and kind of leaning into the idea that, you know, we need to be, you know, first of all, that we will be, and that we need to be completely healed before we do this, that, or the other thing, in this case, sharing something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, because I was thinking about that as I was asking you that question a little bit earlier, and we we're talking about trajectories of productivity, and always kind of wanting to be on this linear trajectory of productivity, I feel like we also now have these kind of, we do the same thing with our healing and we want to kind of put ourselves on these trajectories of healing. You know, this kind of idea of productivity just sort of gets kind of grafted onto our healing process. Um, I just went through a breakup like moments ago and I can already feel both myself and so many people around me encouraging me to get on some sort of healing timeline, you know, where I, Mm -hmm. I move through some sort of perfect productive arc of feeling my feelings and processing my anger and then, you know, ultimately arriving at gratitude, but, you know, like doing all of it very carefully and with great consciousness. So I'm not doing any spiritual bypassing (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. you know, I can feel the levels of expectation that I'm bringing to my healing and that other folks are projecting onto me for my healing are just like too much. Um, and you talked about, you've talked about how, when you started writing more openly about your, you know, actual lived experience, rather than just presenting yourself as 
a sort of wise therapist or a blank slate for others to project onto. Some people were disappointed. You said Mm -hmm. that someone wrote you an email that says something like, you know, I thought you were healed and you had so much more things figured out. It was really uncomfortable for me to see someone I looked up to moving through your own struggles. Um, Mm -hmm. And they said they were disappointed. Mm -hmm. Um, It hurt my heart when I was reading that. Um, What are your thoughts on how our outsized expectations for moving through our own healing, as well as the expectations that we project onto others, um, you know, who we kind of might idealize or view as experts. I'm kind of curious how you think about that dynamic or just have experienced that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. I think even, you know, with certain friendships, people, because they've known that I have been a therapist, they have assumed that I like don't need as much support or that I can figure it out on my own or that I know what to do or that I have the wisdom. And I think when people are in certain roles, we forget that there's like a whole human contained within that role and containing that role. And um, I think that sort of goes back into the share from your scars, not your wounds thing. Cause I, I ask like, who, who is saying that? Is the person sharing it saying it? Or are the people who don't want to have to sit with something uncomfortable until it's more wrapped up in a bow saying it? And I don't think we're taught in this culture that we live in how to sit with the uncertainty and the ambiguity of so many things that we move through, like breakups or like role transitions or you know, any of the things that we move through that we're told are supposed to happen in this linear way. I think there's a deep discomfort with not needing to know what to say to fix something for someone else and being willing to just sit in the sort of simmering of the experience with someone. And when I think about it that way, I, I think that's one of the gifts of being willing to not wait until we're on some perceived other side before we let ourselves be seen in the messiness of what we're moving through, both for other people to learn how to be with one another in those in-between places that we so often find ourselves, and for us to not feel like we have to move through those in-between places quicker than is actually natural or healing or nourishing or supportive for us, um, you know, with a breakup or with a job transition or with anything there, there are so many things to be moved through in those experiences that when we and others can give it the time and the space and the tending and the attention that it actually needs and that it actually requires of us, there's, there's so much more room for actual transformation and growth to occur. And so much more spaciousness for what's real to actually emerge um, versus what we think needs to emerge because we don't trust ourselves to be with the discomfort of what's real a lot of the time. Mm. Sitting with the simmering. That feels like a good place to begin to wrap up, I have just one final question that I would like to ask you, Lisa, which is throughout the season of the podcast, I've been 
meditating on the idea of coming home, of coming home to our roots, home to our ancestors, home to ourselves. We haven't been talking about that explicitly today, but I think we've been talking about it implicitly. You know, how do we come home to ourselves in the ways that we show up online or the ways that we show up in our careers, our professional roles? So I'm curious if you could prompt the folks listening with one question to reflect on about this idea, this theme of coming home, what would it be? Mm. I think what comes to mind, and I think just something that I ask myself a lot is how how can you let it be a a continuous practice rather than a place that you have to arrive. Yeah. How can it be an ongoing practice to return to ourselves, our, our ancestors, our sense of home, our sense of place, rather than feeling like it's something that we need to accomplish or check off a to-do list or arrive in, um, that orientation feels really important for me and I imagine for a lot of us. The ethos of Lisa's final question of how can it be an ongoing practice to return to ourselves is something that I've been reflecting on lately quite a bit and even in advance of this conversation. Thinking about how can I stay with myself or come back to myself when strong emotions arise or when situations of conflict arise? How can I be with myself and be on my own side as opposed to going into harsh self-criticism, for example? How can I be on my own side when I'm confronted with challenging or uncomfortable situations? How can I stay grounded in my own energy system, my own ethics, my own values, when so many external forces are trying to throw me off course. That is, as Lisa says, the practice. Coming back to yourself, coming back to the heart space, coming back to tenderness again and again and again. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to share it with a friend. New listeners come to Hurry Slowly primarily through word of mouth, so anything that you can do to spread the word is very welcome. If you'd like to stay in touch with me and or hear more about my offerings and what I'm thinking about, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. The newsletter is only full of 100% distilled purified goodness, no crap, no filler, and it doesn't come out that frequently. So believe me, you are not going to feel overwhelmed. I hurry quite slowly when it comes to creating my newsletters. This episode was produced by Matt Susich with additional audio love from Devin Craig Johnson. As always, thank you so much for listening and remember to take your time. Mm-hmm.